Welcome to Stars and Swords, I'm Alistair Stevens. In this week's episode, we pick up the pace and begin to chart the labyrinth of rabbits with chapters 4 to 16. This week, death, conspiracy, compulsory heterosexuality, manic pixie dreamgirls, and of course, Jeff Goldblum. But first, horror in the age of the internet and creepypasta, although before we even get to that, a quick note that the poll for the next series of Stars and Swords should be up on the Patreon page by the time you hear this. I will talk more about it at the end of the show, but we're going to tackle some magical realist fiction by female authors, and you can choose which book we discuss, patreon.com slash next word. Copypasta. That is, that which has been copied and pasted because the internet isn't always as smart as you wish that it were. Copypasta becomes a phenomenon online in the mid-2000s. The technique of reposting, either word for word or with very minor alterations, the same content in different environments, in different contexts, under different circumstances, usually as a non sequitur to what has preceded it, begins as a form of trolling, of bullying behavior. But then, as so often happens, it begins to be generalized out into a kind of unique communicative tone, a type of self-expression unique to those corners of the internet. It's used, of course, as a means of proving social literacy, or rather by demonstrating the social illiteracy of new users, new visitors to that corner of the internet. The new user tries to have a conversation or engage with this community. You respond by posting copy-pasted text from another source, often misspelled, often hyperbolic, often absurd, often irrelevant, often abusive or offensive. The new user, unlike everyone who is cool in your community, fails to recognize that what has been posted is a running joke, that it is a continuation of an established critique of the original text, the thing that has been copied and pasted. Or it's a joke, a provocation directed at this new user, as well as being a flag, a badge to those users who, like you, are actively demonstrating that they are on the inside. The new user will either try to engage with this provocation sincerely or be confused or upset by it because they, unlike you, do not get it. So basically, like much of the internet in the 2000s, copypasta is a combination of elaborate trolling, of blunt, graceless demonstrations of pop culture literacy, the distancing of oneself from what one is saying online, and quasi-ironic community building. But something else happens around copypasta, and to my mind, it's much more interesting, because what happens is that the repetition itself takes on a kind of power all its own. It turns the things which are being quoted into strange linguistic artifacts, blocks of text which take on meaning distinct from the meaning of the copy-pasted words themselves. You stop processing the language word by word, you stop seeing it as a sincere form of communication, and you start seeing it instead as a single symbol, which is showing up in different places, from different sources, in different contexts, with different inflections. And at this point, the phenomenon of copypasta runs into another emergent property of internet culture, the evolution of urban legend horror stories into short-form horror distributed digitally, often, similarly to copypasta, misspelled, often grammatically incorrect, often with a failed twist or an amusing misunderstanding of the original urban legend. Irony is prevalent. Over time, though, we see another interesting evolution. New urban legends begin to emerge, and they are taken and reposted and changed and edited and 
integrated with other urban legends, the entire process of collaborative mythopoesis, the creation of recognizable horror iconography like the hook-handed guy who stalks teenagers at makeout spots or Bloody Mary or the Jersey Devil or sewer alligators, right? The creation of these stories, which had taken decades prior to the internet, now took weeks or days because of this recursive echo chamber effect. These creatures, these stories, these urban legends of the New Age take several forms. In human, uncanny valley creatures or killers like Jeff the Killer, the Rake, or most famously, and the subject that I have written most extensively about on the internet, the Slender Man, lost, secret, or forgotten episodes of TV shows like Candle Cove or Dead Bart or Suicide Mouse, stories of video games containing ghostly or demonic presences or characters like Herobrine or Ben Drowned or Lavender Town, or the intrusion of eldritch forces or presences into our world, or existing alongside our world, like Zalgo or The Back Rooms, which is probably the most popular contemporary creepypasta phenomenon as of this recording. We can distill a lot of this down to elements and techniques which would now be familiar to us as readers of rabbits, things which look human but are not, because it turns out that Mr. Beaver, back in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was warning us about the Slender Man this whole time as well as spaces and locations which we believe we understand but which do not behave the way they should. And, of course, computerized media offering us glimpses of impossible, harrowing, often violent things. There are two other elements of creepypasta which are important, both to creepypasta as a phenomenon and to rabbits as a novel. The first of these might be thought of as a kind of communicability, an enfolding of the method of distribution into the story itself. Knowledge of the thing becomes dangerous. The more you know about Slenderman, the more you attract the attention of Slenderman. This isn't unique to Creepypasta. Nothing is unique to Creepypasta, really, because you're unlikely to summon Bloody Mary if you don't know the story of how to summon Bloody Mary. But in these stories, it isn't the action which attracts the monster, but oftentimes just the knowledge itself. In the same way, we might speculate that the players don't talk about rabbits because to know about rabbits is, in some way, to be inevitably playing rabbits. The other important element, possibly the most important, is that because these stories emerge from an anarchic, unstructured creative environment, there isn't a single definitive voice, an author, drawing lines to separate the canonical from the non-canonical. The creation of the story, the expansion of the myth, occurs like collaborative storytelling always has. You read a thing, you have an idea, you tell another version of the story that is quirked just so, that adds a new element, that clarifies a connection, an interpretation. En masse, the fuzziness around the edges of the story, therefore, becomes a part of the story itself. That tantalizing sense that you don't know if what you are seeing is the thing, is the monster. And those layers of diegetic reality and unreality continue to expand, to increase, to fold in upon themselves as the story gains more cultural weight, more narrative momentum. So Rabbits is clearly indebted to creepypasta, indebted to internet horror in many ways, both for its substance, the shadowy, grey-shrouded figures, for example, who may or may not be the wardens who, quote, watch and guard us well, the non-linearity of the world around us, the contradiction between history and memory, secrets and structures just under the surface, and for the ways in which the story is told, 
the danger of knowledge, the seeing of connections, the tension between reality and unreality, the treachery of technology, and the underlying ambiguity, the possibility that this might be real. Rabbits also, crucially, replicates the experience of reading horror stories on the internet late at night by creating this sense of intimacy and immediacy. There is little to no remove between Kay's experience and the reader's, a statement that I will make with a giant asterisk attached. More on that later. Rabbits, like many online horror stories, is performing a narrative magic trick that only works because we want it to work. In real life, the chain of connections that leads Kay from one chance encounter to another would be amazing. Coincidences, because human beings are bad at probability and bad at understanding confirmation bias, are, generally, amazing. But rabbits isn't real life, and the orchestration of coincidence in fiction is trivial. The woman in the back of the diner during the meeting with Alan Scarpio didn't choose, randomly, to wear an L.A. Dodgers baseball cap because that woman doesn't exist. She was put there, the cap was put there, with purpose, by the author, and it was highlighted with purpose by the narrator. The process of creating a chain of coincidence is no more complicated than creating any kind of fictional scene or process. Less so, we might argue, since you already have a recurring and consistent element you can build the scene around. But let us not be jaded nihilists. Please, let us never become jaded nihilists. Because there's an obvious magic to the chains of connections which lead Kay through the story. It feels thrilling. It feels exhilarating. It feels authentic. It feels spontaneous, even though, considered rationally, it shouldn't. In a sense, of course, that's true of all storytelling. The people on the page aren't real people, and their conflicts aren't real conflicts, and their emotions aren't real emotions, but we choose to believe, and we respond as though they are. Though, of course, fiction is cleaner and clearer and more direct and more powerful and more effective than real life. It is that uncut, high-grade empathy. But when we get into the artifice of mystery and coincidence, it seems that the intrusion of the self-aware technicalities of the plot should work less well, should be less effective. And that just doesn't seem to be true. Certainly, I get caught up in the impossible coincidences and the orchestration of Kay's experience, even though I know that those elements are not real. And this is the magic trick, because... I think what's happening happens because of the nature of the way that we read. And here, as in most places, I'm going to use the word read to mean absorb a text via the senses, whether by looking at words on a page or images on a screen or listening to audio. Any process of reading is based on the interpretation of signs, of symbols, of words scratched on the page, or a collection of sounds articulated by the tip of the tongue and the teeth and the lips. You read the symbol, you check your internal list of symbols and what they mean, and then you understand what is intended. Coffee, you read, and your brain responds, sure, yeah, here are all the things I know about coffee, from the taste to the history to the social conventions surrounding it, to your own personal experience with it, and yes, since you ask, I would like a cup of coffee. But reading prose, particularly narrative prose, where the intent of the author is more specific than simply giving instructions or descriptions, well, in that case, you aren't just interpreting the semiotics of one particular sign. You're processing a number of signs all at once, and what you're doing is finding connections and conflicts and contradictions and consonants between them, arriving at a greater unit of meaning, a greater sense of what is meant than in the individual word. 
coffee. Hot coffee. Hot coffee in a chipped white mug. Hot coffee in a chipped white mug on a fake marble counter. Hot coffee in a chipped white mug on a fake marble counter at 2 a.m. as the rain beats rhythms on the plate glass windows and the neon sign outside sparks and crackles. Step by step. Interpretive move by interpretive move. Symbol by symbol. We are led toward the understanding of the scene in a process that feels like revelation. We build our understanding of what is happening in the fictional world in exactly the way that Kay experiences the chains of coincidence that are the fingerprint of the game. I know this thing. I know this thing. Wait, I see a connection between these two things. There is something syncretic here. There is a greater significance than meant by the sum of the parts. And when those connections are explicit in the text, when the mechanism of reading and comprehension is surfaced and emphasized in this way, we become aware of the mechanism in the same way that K is. These things are happening in the same time. I mentioned last week the deftness of the narrative when it comes to situating the reader in K's POV, in K's experience. Here, the process of reading and the process of playing rabbits are one and the same. At least, that's the way it normally works. That's the way that Kay normally is. We're going to talk a little next week about the high-level narrative strategy of this book, what Kay is trying to accomplish by telling us this story, and how Kay's self-awareness and ability to interpret the events of the plot ebbs and flows as we move through the text. We will shelve that for now and talk about it next week. So that, ultimately, is my current theory on why the process of the book works as well as it does, and why it sometimes falters, usually because we aren't in the moment with K. Because when we aren't in the moment, when we aren't experiencing the same thing simultaneously, the magic breaks a little, and we stop feeling that same process of interpretive discovery. Instead, the artifice is revealed. And I think that there's a general phenomenon, because once you've been in a philosophy program, you're never quite the same. I think that there's a general phenomenon of texts which in some way take on the quality of the subject in order to bring the audience closer and to make the process of reading more like the experience of the protagonist. I think that this is an interesting feature of the films of Richard Linklater, but that is probably a thought that we will need to explore another time. So, to this week's reading. Oh, in fact, we have a brief PSA before we get to next week's reading, because Nicola emailed to say that she was listening to season one of the Rabbits podcast alongside the reading for this week and was struck by a number of inconsistencies between the two and wanted some confirmation about how these differences were supposed to be interpreted, what the narrative intent was. And yes, I think I was maybe a little gentle in my suggestion to skip the podcast until you've read the book or... Alternatively, go listen to the podcast and then come back to the book, because trying to do both at once will be difficult. And I'm trying to say this without spoilers for either the podcast series or the book, but these two stories do not take place in the same world. So specific names and dates and facts, many of these things, though not all, are different. And some are different only to emphasize that they are different parts of different versions of the same story. Confused? Me too. I actually dipped back into the podcast this week because I couldn't remember how a particular element which is introduced in this reading plays out in the end of the podcast, and I immediately felt like I was playing rabbits myself, drawing connections and noting discrepancies and misremembering my history. And I'm not saying that that's why I got sick for two days, which I'm sure you can still hear in my voice, but, you know, these are the dangers of playing rabbits. 
I should also note that my warning about the Rabbits podcast, which, again, I do think is very good, extends to a lesser degree to the whole Public Radio Alliance Minnow Beats Whale universe, because there are links of a sort between all of the podcasts made by Terry Miles and in particular, Rabbits has a resonance with Tannis, which is, of course, name-checked in this week's reading when Kay gives Chloe a Tannis podcast t-shirt to wear when she sleeps over. That will not be the only self-referential moment in this week's reading. So, let's get to that reading, in which we learn about Kay's past, meet and say farewell to Baron Corduroy, meet and become concerned about the magician, and meet and spend a lot of time with the aforementioned Chloe. We search for Alan Scarpio, we deal with fake history, with fake memories, with fake video, fake Sonic the Hedgehog, and bloodily begin the 11th iteration of Rabbits. We'll end with Hazel's musings on coincidence and synchronicity. More on that later. In Chapter 4, we learn about the deaths of Kay's parents, what happened next, Kay's financial security because of their ability to see patterns in the stock market, and then their descent into compulsive gaming beginning with their experience playing Underlight, a real game with a focus on role-playing and internal consistency, by the way, set in a place called the City of Dreams, surrounded by a force called Chaos, which brings nightmares to the residents of the city. It was released in 1998, which means that when Kay describes it as a brand new game in the book, the timeline doesn't work, and we're going to spend some time talking about the timeline later, but we know that Kay's parents were still alive in 1999 and didn't die until a few years after that, this means that Kay could be talking about the game being released on the PC gaming platform Steam, which happened in 2018, but as we'll discuss in a little while, the timeline is a little slippery. This is the story which ends in the Harvard Exit Theater, but this isn't how Kay relates events. We begin at the end, and then jump around in the chronology. First, we get the account of Kay's descent into compulsive gaming. Then, the reference to avoiding psychiatric care after being arrested in the theater. We jump back a little to explain the trespassing incident, then back to the death of Ruby the Chihuahua, then back to the death of Kay's parents, then back to the beginning of the story with Underlight, and then back to Kay's childhood games of connections. This stream-of-consciousness patchwork construction of story seems to mimic the process of the game itself, jumping from connection to connection to unravel the thread, to move deeper into the labyrinth, and might inspire us to consider, as we move into the story about connections, how Kay does and does not play games. Or, I guess, more accurately, what exactly Kay considers to be a game, what exactly Kay considers to be playing, and how deeply the processes of rabbits and connections have been internalized. Because the connections that we are drawing between these narrative points as we move backward through Kay's personal timeline, these are not narrative inferences. These are not narrative connections. We are not coming to understand Kay better because of the achronological presentation of this information. Rather, what we're getting is thematic. It is tonal. It is encouraging us to look beyond the here and now of the narrative and to see disparate elements in synchrony. So the high-level narrative move here is familiar. The protagonist of the story experiences something strange, and we pull back on the camera to anchor those events in the experience of the protagonist as a child, and in the knowledge and secrecy of the parental figures, a specific instantiation of the kind of arcane knowledge held by figures of authority of which we're skeptical in this millennial kind of text. Figures in authority have more information, have more power, but they lack, crucially, the protagonistic agency that we have. The detail of the narrative, though, is interesting. 
the finding of connections in the cards is a deliberate echo of this novel itself. These cards are authored things. So it isn't really a coincidence that the pattern of the wallpaper is the same as the tiger's stripes. It is architected, just like those strings of coincidence presented in the novel. But like those in the novel, we may feel that this training exercise is simply strengthening a muscle, or at least encouraging a behavior, a pattern of behavior, that will have real applicability later. This is certainly true for Kay, as we move out into the real world and begin tracking coincidences rabbits style. This is true for us, as we navigate a novel which contains definite enumerated coincidences, and also contains secrets to be uncovered, connections to be made by the reader particularly if you're engaged in the kind of close reading that we're doing here. This game of real-world connections takes Kay all the way to the chessboard and the playing of the game, the physical embodiment of the ludic process, the game rules. And all at once, we get the description of the grey feeling, which is somewhat familiar to us already, and the presence behind the grey feeling, the something in the sky which might have become aware of Kay. Kay references the Eye of Sauron seeing Frodo when he puts on the ring, and I have to take this as the incident at Amon-Hen above Parthgallon after his encounter with Boromir. On the seat of seeing atop Amon-Hen, Frodo, wearing the ring, can survey all of Middle-earth and can see the signs of war everywhere. It's when he looks towards Barad-dûr in Mordor that he feels the eye, quote, and suddenly he felt the eye. There was an eye in the dark tower that did not sleep, he knew that it had become aware of his gaze. A fierce, eager will was there. It leaped towards him. Almost like a finger, he felt it, searching for him. Very soon it would nail him down, know just exactly where he was. Amond Law, it touched. It glanced over Tolbrandir. He threw himself from the seat, crouching, covering his head with his grey hood. He heard himself crying out, Never, never! Or was it, Verily I come, I come to you? He could not tell. Then, as a flash from some other point of power, there came to his mind another thought. Take it off! Take it off! Fool, take it off! Take off the ring! So, four things. The first is that it is becoming increasingly difficult to continue the pretense that this is not secretly a Tolkien podcast. No, 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 I really am discussing other books, I promise. It's just circumstance. It's just rabbits-like connections that keep bringing me back to the professor's work. Secondly... The eye searches for Frodo because he is, in a sense, looking for it. There is a kind of reciprocity here. Thirdly, the intercession of what some take to be the voice of Gandalf, of course, who we have lost at the Bridge of Khazad-dûm and who has not yet in the narrative returned to the world as Gandalf the White. Hey, spoilers for The Lord of the Rings, you guys. And, and finally, this moment is critical in the unfolding narrative because this the power of the ring, the experience of the eye, the scale of the war, this is the moment when Frodo decides to break the fellowship and go off on his own. This is the turning point in the quest, and the moment that Frodo stops being under the authority of others, first Bilbo, and then Gandalf, and then Aragorn. In this way, I understand the comparison with the lidless eye to indicate a breaking point between Kay and Kay's parents, both in the past and in the present. We don't get an account as intimate and familial of Kay's parents later in this story. Kay's parents will remain an influence in the story, but the character of that influence will be different from here on. Much like Frodo, Kay is now alone. Well, alone except for Samwise slash Chloe, which is perhaps an unflattering comparison now that I think about it. The last beat in this chapter is also fascinating because Kay explicitly states, quote, 
I never played the game called Connections again, not only because of what had happened to me in the theater waiting for the passenger, but because I was about to find something better. I was about to rediscover the game called Rabbits. So I suppose the obvious question is this. In what way is Connections not Rabbits? What is different about Kay's quests across the city, first with parents, then without, and the playing of Rabbits itself? Both rely upon coincidence, on connection, on moving through, navigating the real world. I'm thinking here in particular of the Night Station quest with Emily Connors, which is the best example we've had thus far of what it's like to actually play rabbits, the application of arcane information in the real world and the drawing of connections that result. Is rabbits then only one type of game that exists in a world where games of this type exist? Is Kay describing a world in which there are all kinds of card games, and connections and rabbits are two different kinds of poker? Similar, yes, but with different rules and different goals? Or is, and this is critical, I think, is Kay drawing a false line between the two? Is Kay failing to recognize that they are the same? Is this conscious or unconscious? Is it possible that Kay is invested in the story of rabbits, in the trivia and the minutia, rather than looking at what it is? Or perhaps Kay is choosing not to see an uncomfortable coincidence, an uncomfortable connection, that Kay was trained as a child to play rabbits, and Emily Connors, daughter of family friends, also somehow stumbled into the game? Well, we'll come back to all that. In Chapter 5, we meet Kay's first sidekick character, Baron Corduroy, who is basically a more forceful, brusque, and masculine version of Kay, who exhibits the same, quote, ability to recognize complex patterns, connections, and coincidences, end quote, that makes a player suitable for rabbits. And we might note that this is also the kind of native intelligence, rather than education, that would be attractive to millennial people who are suspicious of the structures of higher education and the value of specific pieces of information, but who nonetheless respect the ability to synthesize, as we discussed last week, the ability to process the freely available information of the internet age. We move on to the meeting with Scarpio in the diner, which of course turns out into a meeting with the mysterious woman who answers the phone when Kay calls the number on Scarpio's card. This is all pretty straightforward mystery building, and we're deep into Terry Miles' tick of looping, repetitive dialogue, which I admit sometimes works for me, but isn't in general my favorite thing about the book. Then we get to the detail of Steffi Graf losing the tennis match that Kay is tapping out. And I must admit, I love this. I love the way that it combines memory and fact and pattern repetition and this sudden treachery the betrayal of the system. It is a way of communicating to the reader and to Kay that something is wrong without letting us identify which part of the process is broken. The actual match as it happened in history, the actual match as it happened in Kay's memory, the pattern that has been distilled from that match, or the replication of the pattern via tapping. I find it fascinating and an extremely deft narrative turn to make the reader feel uncomfortable, to recognize that there is a problem, but be unable to identify the source. Let's also note here that Kay is somewhat intimidated by how put together and adult the woman across the table is, describing her as being around 35. 
And we'll put a pin in that because we have to go and meet Chloe, who really functions, I think, as the distaff counterpart to Baron Corduroy. Again, a lot like Kay, except this time more traditionally feminine, although it's a certain kind of millennial femininity. Though she seems cool, unlike Baron, we're told, she, quote, gives all the fucks. And caring, of course, is really what separates the masculine from the feminine. This is somewhat reductive, but all of these characters are, all of the supporting characters in Kay's adventure are somewhat simplified. They fulfill a specific narrative purpose and role, at least at the moment of their introduction. I also think it is fair to say that all of these characters become more complex as we move through the narrative as a whole, but neither one makes a particularly strong impression on me right up front. And that's a problem specifically with Chloe, because Chloe, who is presented as this person who is incredibly cool, but also passionate, but also smart, but also kind, and is also really dedicated to Kay, then the book lampshades all of this by crediting to Chloe the hit song MPDG Manic Pixie Dream Girl. This is a phrase coined, of course, by Nathan Rabin of the AV Club in a review of Cameron Crowe's movie Elizabethtown, in which Kirsten Dunst plays a character who, quote, exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures, end quote. Any editorial from me here would be perhaps gilding the lily, so let's keep this in mind as we move forward. Is Chloe a manic pixie dream girl for Kay? Is this intentional? Is this satire? One small detail here, too. Chloe's song is titled MPDG, but Dream Girl, two words in Rabin's original description and usually two words in general discourse, is contracted in Kay's account to a single word. In any case, we get the account of how Kay and Chloe almost got together, but Kay's passivity results in a five-year relationship with Amanda, who, by the way, will be mentioned three times in this chapter and will not appear again. So, look, cards on the table. As you can probably tell, Chloe and Baron don't completely work for me, in part because they are pretty thin characters intended to round out the cast and to inform Kay's private life, but much more importantly because they are clearly here to give Kay somebody to talk to, to work through the problems with, to ask unanswerable questions, and then usually repeat them two or three times. I think that the book works better when it is more in the first-person mode, when Kay is actually telling us the story instead of reporting dialogue between her friends. And again, I'm approaching the question of what this book, of what Kay's account is or isn't, what it is for and not for. We will touch on that next week. I should also note that in addition to improving as the book goes on, I think that both Chloe and Baron Corduroy come off better on the page than they do in the audiobook version for me, though I can't blame Christine Lakin for either take on either character. In chapter 7, we introduce the magician, who gives us another set of resources and insights that we can leverage to solve puzzles, but does at least seem to have his own goals and priorities, much less of a manic pixie dream person. Between chapters 7 and 8, we solve the puzzle diegetically architected by Scarpio, which yields the video of Jeff Goldblum. Before we get to that, though, we get the sleepover with Chloe, which contains, as I realized during this reading, the reason that I interpret Kay as being a female character. Quote, I zoomed in on the dog's face, and why wouldn't Chloe be thinking about me? I moved over to examine the details of the building in the deep background. We're both single now, right? I turned my attention back to the dog. There is absolutely no reason to feel weird about being attracted to a smart and beautiful woman. 
I zoomed in on the grass. Okay, settle down. No point in obsessing like this. The dog's bandana. But Chloe is perfect. Okay, now you just sound sad. In this, as in so many things, we're indebted to poet, philosopher, and scholar Adrienne Rich, who, in 1980, wrote the paper Compulsory Heterosexuality and Lesbian Experience, which asserts that the emphasis put on heterosexuality is the product of centuries of dominant heterosexuality. That is, the heterosexual bias is deeply foundational to many of our assumptions about gender and romance, about family life and domesticity, about the law and society, about aesthetics and our standards of beauty, about our philosophies, and most importantly, most fundamentally, about our politics. Compulsory heterosexuality, obligatory, normalized heterosexuality, is politically dominant, and it serves to perpetuate the advantage of the heterosexual, and relegates other kinds of romantic and erotic connection, particularly lesbian, per rich, but she was writing almost 45 years ago, and we can expand our definitions a little from that. Compulsory heterosexuality enforces a border between what is considered normal and what is considered not and that what is not normal exists in defiance and opposition, explicit or implicit, whether it is accepted or not, to that conventional social order. That means that it's impossible to discuss heterosexuality or homosexuality or bisexuality or pansexuality equally without bias, because heterosexuality has the power of centuries of assumption of politics and philosophy and language behind it. All these concepts can come to play, but they are playing by heterosexuality's rules. This is a perfect example, and to me, this is the proof that Kay self-identifies as queer. Quote, There is absolutely no reason to feel weird about being attracted to a smart and beautiful woman. End quote. And of course there isn't, should you be so romantically and sexually inclined. But compulsory heterosexuality influences our society in part by telling us what is implied, telling us what does and does not need to be stated, telling us what is very much quote-unquote normal. I don't believe that a self-identifying heterosexual character would feel the need to assert that there is no reason to feel weird about being attracted to a smart and beautiful woman because their attraction is sanctioned by the social structure. It is implied. It reads to me very much as a queer person making a claim of something which is absolutely true, but sits in the shadow of presumptive, conventional heterosexual attraction. Also, on a lighter note, we learn that Kay owns candles, candles plural, and not to be all, you know, TikTok comedy short on the differences between men and women or whatever, but that's also, for me, a big checkmark in favor of a female protagonist. The hack version of that joke would be women own multiple candles, men own multiple flashlights. True in my experience, but toxic nonetheless. Let's move on to chapter 8 and to the Jeff Goldblum video. Firstly, let's observe what I take to be a retreat from pop cultural specificity in order to make a joke. We name-check Steven Spielberg and, of course, Jeff Goldblum and all his quirky magnificences all over this section of the book, but we don't specify the leads of the film. Quote, Jeff Goldblum is a movie star, no doubt, but these people were clearly saving most of their excitement for the male and female leads of the film. The dark-haired, scruffy-looking guy from the superhero movie with the plane crash, and the blondish woman from that TV show where she played an alien learning how to fall in love with a human. End quote. And I take this to simply be a joke about the kinds of anonymous, interchangeable actors who get the leads in big-budget movies, as contrasted with the very specific and much cooler Goldblum. 
But there is a chance that I am missing a specific reference. And if I am, get in touch and let me know. Starsandswordspod at gmail.com. Overall, though, the content of the film obviously echoes the creepypasta videos I discussed earlier, the combination of the prosaic and the transgressively violent, the sense that this is a secret or that it is fake or that it ought not to exist, the implication via Jeff Goldblum does not belong in this world, that there is something larger and more dangerous at stake. As Kay notes, quote, something about the video just felt wrong, not just the depiction, not just the events that we see, not just the diegesis, but the mimesis itself. Again, we are looking at the ways in which stories can take on associated meanings, even within the frame of another text. We work through the mystery step by step, confirming the intelligence and the resourcefulness of our Scooby gang, and ending the conversation with Tabitha Henry herself, and the perfect pivot at the end of the conversation where, unable to reconcile this obviously impossible video of herself, Tabitha does what people do. She chooses to believe that it's a prank. This, Rabbits tells us, this is how most people get through the day. When confronted with the impossible, with the proof of the game, they ignore it. This is repeated at the beginning of chapter 9, when Kay tells us the story of the anachronistic Sonic the Hedgehog appearing in Wizard's Quest 4. Not a real game this time, but perhaps redolent of the wizardry series of computer role-playing games in the early 1980s. We meet with Travis and Beverly and are, very much after the fact, introduced to the magician. The magician here clarifies, in the quote that gives us the name of this chapter, that rabbits is defined as everything which is not everything that is not rabbits, which, while a little tautological, is suggestive. The game can't be delineated. The boundaries aren't known. Instead of approaching a contained object like the pages of a book, you instead recognize rabbits as the subject of a series of investigative processes. That is, as the magician also says, you only know the game if you're playing it. And this loops us back to the idea that we don't tell people about rabbits because to tell people about rabbits is to draw them into the playing of the game. I have to question at this point, though the text is painstakingly differentiating between players and spectators, is there a difference? Is it possible to know about rabbits and not to be playing rabbits. Other than that, this part of the book is most concerned with giving us the shoe leather of investigation and the normal casual rejection of the possibility of rabbits in the minds of those who aren't playing, which, you'll note, include Kay. Quote, Ever since that night in the truck with Annie and Emily Connors, I'd been convinced that rabbits was something I'd either made up or misremembered. But in that moment, sitting there in the magician's office, I felt a shift in my mind and I allowed myself to imagine something I'd never seriously considered. Rabbits might actually be real. This, we're told, is when Kay meets Chloe for the first time. She is not quite 21 years old, let's put a pin in that, and this is also when we are introduced to The Circle, the most concrete piece of information we have about rabbits up to this point. The first version we get is from Space Ace, an absolutely real video game this time, though, like Kay, I always prefer Dragon's Lair. It lists the winners of the first seven iterations, and we get a description of a few alternate versions, and we introduce Hazel, the winner of the eighth and most recent iteration, as of this conversation. And this is interesting, because this conversation with the magician, as we've learned, is taking place in Kay's senior year at college. We're getting closer to the discussion of the timeline, I promise. We're, we're just marshalling our resources right now. Hazel's missive at the end of the chapter gives us some information about The Circle, the Canadian film that aired at TIFF in 2010, by the way, and whose credits featured a version of The Circle. 
I will put down $100 right now that that film is A Night for Dying Tigers, a real film which aired at TIFF in 2010 and was written and directed by Terry Miles. At the beginning of chapter 10, we root Scorpio's phone and track the call he received in the diner to War Games Seattle, which is the opportunity we need for a huge lore dump on a new element of this world. And this is our opportunity, though, to finally talk about the timeline, because here we are. We're told in the Prescott Competition Manifesto that the game is ancient and that the modern iterations, beginning with Roman numeral one, begin in 1959. Kay, Emily, and Annie venture out in search of the night station in 1999, as confirmed by Kay at the end of Chapter 2. We know that Annie and Emily Connors are one and three years older than Kay, respectively, which makes Kay probably 13 to 15 in 1999. Emily is old enough to drive, but still lives at home with her family, making her between 16 and 18. When they're out driving, Kay tells us, quote, if I showed up at the gravel pits with Emily and Annie Connors, I'd be a hero tomorrow at school. That also implies perhaps that Emily is still in school. That puts Kay's birth between 1984 and 1986. We know that Kay's parents die when Kay is 17, which would be sometime between 2001 and 2003. We know that a few years after the night station incident and Annie's death in 1999, Kay saw Emily when she was traveling with her parents to San Francisco. So let's be charitable. Let's say that a few here means three, which means that Kay saw Emily at the gas station in 2002, probably when Kay was 16, and Kay's parents died the following year. Kay then enrolls in college. Between their sophomore and junior years, we get the disastrous spiral into Connections, which ends in the Harvard Exit Theater. In Kay's senior year, she meets the magician and Chloe, who, as we mentioned, isn't quite 21 and so is probably a year younger than Kay. We know that Kay begins tapping out tennis matches as a kid. We know that after their parents die, they've learned alternative means of controlling or combating their anxiety. We know that it's been more than 10 years, as of the trip to the diner with Scorpio, since Kay tapped out a tennis match. So that puts us, bare minimum, in 2014. And Kay is probably 27, 28, maybe 29, something like that. And sure, the second epigraph at the beginning of the book is dated 2021, the year of the novel's release, but that could be extra textual. That could be compiled years after Kay's account, the account that we are reading, is written. And that makes sense, right? Because Kay, intuitively, to me at least, feels like someone in their late 20s. But then we hit chapter 10, and we get the reference to the Wired article about Hawk Warwicker that's published in 2016. The author of that article, by the way, Yumiko Takada, is a reference to the podcast version, not a spoiler, just a reference. Then we learn that the Kingfisher Cafe closed in 2015, which is fine per our timeline, but the real kicker comes when Kay confirms that 2015 was six years ago. The events of this book are taking place in 2021, and Kay, surprisingly, to my mind, is between 35 and 37 years old. Now, that means a lot of things, and it really shifted my understanding of who Kay is as a character. It also means that Kay meets Chloe and the Magician when the eighth iteration of Rabbits is already over, sometime around 2006, maybe 2007. So Kay and Chloe have known each other for 14 or 15 years, and in that time, two more complete iterations of the game, 9 and 10, have been played. Kay wonders at the end of the previous chapter if the voice they heard from the night station was beginning iteration six or seven of the game, 
which means that conceivably four or even five iterations of the game have been played in the 22 years since the door opened in 1999, which could be as many as in the 40 years between 1999 and 1959 when we're told the modern iterations of the game began. Does this suggest that the game is accelerating? How much attention should we be paying to this timeline? Does, perhaps most importantly, Kay feel like someone who is approaching their 40th birthday? There's also the recurring question of economic stratum and class, because yes, even books set in modern-day America are really about class. Kay, Chloe, and Baron have all acquired, and could continue to acquire, large amounts of money. They all live fairly modest, scrappy, artsy bohemian lives in Seattle, which is the ninth most expensive city in the United States, just under Boston and just above Oakland. There's an interesting question to be asked about what this combination of money and poverty, or even the affectation of poverty, again, relatively speaking, what these things say about our main character's social position, particularly when we consider alternativism as a culture unto itself. In any case, we get our exposition here on Hawk Warwicker and War Games, Inc. Warwicker is an amalgamation of a lot of 70s and 80s tech visionaries. He has a little Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. He has a little of Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and weirdly Chuck E. Cheese. And he has a lot of Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple and everyone's favorite avuncular pioneer of computer technology. We will get a lot more on war games next week, so we'll circle back to the notion of the benevolent and visionary patriarchal system in the tech industry then. From there, reality suddenly fails to match up with the narrative account, and Kay is almost hit by a car in the street. Then, only after returning home and talking with Chloe, does Kay realize that the world no longer matches their memories, specifically the aforementioned Kingfisher Cafe. From there, we flash back again to 2016, to the beginning of Nine, and the building with the amazing disappearing, reappearing fifth floor. The narrative strategy here is interesting, and I have to confess, this is the point at which I begin to wonder if the novel would be more effective without this somewhat intrusive, cross-cut cinematic structure. Not that it isn't effective in its way, it is disorienting when it needs to be, and grounding and immediate when it needs to be, and it definitely replicates the experience of making rabbits-like connections, as I mentioned earlier. But there is something else. It's a deflationary move, in a specific character sense, to have an experience, and then flash back to a worse, more dramatic version of that experience, which the character has already moved through. It does, I understand raise a kind of speculative stake for Kay's future, as well as anchoring what is happening now in something established and present and consistent, but it's nonetheless an odd strategy, particularly in a story in which Kay is so disconnected from the supporting cast. No one is relying on Kay, no one needs Kay, so the stakes attached to their identity, their memories, their presence, are only motivating in as much as we, the readers, theoretically like Kay and want them to have what they want. This has already been a long podcast, and we have miles to go before we sleep, and my voice is failing fast, but luckily, the next few chapters are plot-oriented and somewhat replicative of what we've already seen, so we can pick up the pace. In chapter 11, we get the introduction to Sidney Farrow, a new employee at Wargames and the top-secret augmented reality game engine that Wargames is allegedly developing. Augmented reality is, simply put, 
like the Snapchat filters that turn you into a cute cat or whatever, a digital overlay that enhances the real world rather than full virtual reality, which is the complete ground up creation of a fictional space. We'll talk a little more about that as we go. The Erhard Seminar's training, by the way, the quote unquote cult that informs Sidney Farrow's education is real and is definitely worth Googling if you're interested, though, I should note, in an old school Twitter style linking does not equal endorsement kind of way. We learn that the rules about not talking about rabbits are serious. Quote, There are whispers of severe retribution for players who talk about rabbits publicly. Retribution that includes extreme hacking, swatting, doxing, and worse. According to the rumors, marriages have been destroyed, people sent to prison, and immense fortunes lost. End quote. Swatting here is the malicious practice of sending armed police officers to the home or the office of someone who is broadcasting live on the internet under the pretense of a threat or major crime. Doxing is the practice of publishing or releasing documents, thus the name, relating to the personal information of someone online, their real name, their address, their social security, that kind of thing, with the intent to encourage identity theft, to encourage fraud and real-world harassment and violence. Both are commonplace in certain spheres of internet culture, particularly live streaming. Both are dangerous and illegal. But this is one of the first narrative moves that the book will make to assert the power and significance of rabbits in the real world of the novel. That is, beyond the players and the spectators and the informed elite who know about the game, the game still has significance. Knowing about it, and certainly talking about it, can make really bad things happen. We follow the leads to Russell Milligan, who warns Kay away from the game. Then, a couple weeks later, we circle back to him, and he passes Kay away of contacting Amanda Obscura, someone connected with Hazel. We visit the thrift store, we get the clue leading us to Shirley Booth, we continue onward to Golden Seal Carpet Cleaning. And way back when we were talking about internet horror at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that Rabbit's works, in my mind, because... It situates the reader in Kay's POV, in Kay's experience, and that's how the process of clues and connections works its magic. Kay is doing what we are doing as readers. For me, the proof of this theory, the demonstration of the inverse, I suppose, is present in this chapter, when we get an accounting of a chain of connections after the fact, and for me, all of the magic is gone. Quote, On our way here, I'd started noticing the number 23. 23 flowers on a billboard advertising a local florist. 23 steps to cross the street. A kid in a LeBron James jersey. 23 stepping onto a number 23 bus. And now we were going up to the second floor and Chloe had just pressed the elevator button three times. 23. End quote. I made myself a couple of small promises when I started this series, and the first and most important was that I wasn't going to be seduced away from the study of this book by my interest in, and, and the book's shared interest in, game study and game theory. But the thing is, the book is interested in the way that Rabbits is played, or more accurately, I guess, by the way that Kay plays all the various games of connections that are presented. And one of the reasons that we play games is to develop a mastery over the game, to improve our understanding, our strategy, our technique, our ability. Sometimes we play games that we're good at just because there is a pleasure that we derive from being good at the game. And this passage seems to be intended to demonstrate Kay's growing mastery. By moving the chain of connections into the past tense, it becomes almost incidental to the movement of the game itself. In the same way that 
past a certain point, remembering the way that each chess piece moves becomes incidental to the playing of chess. We internalize, we master these ludic elements. Ludic there is modern game theory usage, taken, of course, from the Latin word for game. It is a part of modern game theory discourse in which we consider the ludological, those things which relate to the study of games, and narratological, those things which relate to the study of stories, and how those two things intersect. There's a lot of great writing in this space, and this is a discipline that has deep roots but is, in its modern form, only 30 years old or so. There's a tension here. Not least of all because our goals here at Stars and Swords are explicitly narratological. We study stories to understand how and why they do what they do. But a foundational principle of ludology is that narratological approaches are insufficient to understand games. That's why game theory as a discipline exists. And this is, I would argue, one of the ways in which Rabbits articulates that argument. Because a strictly narratological analysis of this sequence is going to yield an unimpressive conclusion. An analysis sensitive to ludological arguments, however, is going to be able to appreciate those notions of passive mastery, of higher order strategy, of internalization. But this is a narratological podcast, so we get to be perhaps a little disappointed at this past tense recounting of Kay's mastery of incidental detail and coincidence, rather than celebrate Kay's growing skill at the game. There really is an interesting discussion to be had about how Rabbits works as a game, which would be perhaps an extension of how alternate reality games work if they aren't alternate, if this is not a game isn't a posture, but in fact, fact. This sequence ends with the discovery of the ancient Commodore computer, and I myself never owned a VIC-20, but I was born and raised in Britain, so you had best believe I owned both a Commodore 64 and an Amiga 500 as a kid, and with the live broadcast of the suicide of Minister Jesselman, and the announcement that the 11th iteration has begun, and that the door is open. This is a real focal point for what this book is doing. The real-life consequences of the game, which I mentioned earlier, the public nature of the death of Minister Jesselman, who is himself a figure of authority and of real-world, old-school, established power. These things both demonstrate that the game, which was previously hidden and secretive, can and will transgress out of its nerd culture domain into the spotlight of the mainstream. And... One of the tensions of these nerdy subcultures, of course, is the desire to feel superior to, but also oppressed by, mainstream culture. This act of conquest, this act of incursive violence, is something to be respected and perhaps even admired. But more important to the sense of rabbits as a whole is the presentation of the video. Both elements here, I believe, both the form of the video and the content of the video, as it were, emerge from the same underlying desire, I think, to recapture the magic of computers as experienced by children in the 1980s. Back then, you couldn't meaningfully interact with a computer without engaging with some very technical systems. Now, and I promise this will not turn into the rant of a 45-year-old man about how terrible computers are now, but now you are deliberately insulated from the mechanisms of the computer by layers, actual multiple layers, of user interface. Even the idea of interacting with a computer via a keyboard is now somewhat outdated. You would tap an icon to open an app. You slide a pleasantly skeuomorphic slider. Your experience is mediated by clearly delineated functionality within a safe and orderly walled garden. Nothing bad can happen. Nothing surprising can happen. 
And to be clear, for most purposes, most of the time, that is a good thing. But back in the day, computers were arcane and inscrutable. You would painstakingly enter commands into a basic prompt on the Commodore 64 or MS-DOS on your IBM-compatible PC of choice or ProDOS on the late-era Apple IIs, and if you said the incantation just right, your game would run, or your program would print Hello World or randomize a number between 1 and 6. Computers, to the children of that era, were capable of amazing and magical things. Their boundaries were unknown. In the 90s, you might have felt a similar way the first time you saw full-motion video on a computer screen. It didn't feel impossible that if you typed in the right sequence, your computer would be able to show you something you had never imagined. And this is happening in an era, of course, where computer technology is accelerating so rapidly that every couple of years you really would see something that you never imagined possible on a computer. And yes, for those of you who love to make the connections, I think you can argue that computer technology in the 1980s, and specifically the non-trivial modalities of interaction, do make narrativized content presented by a computer ergodic in nature. The other half of this, of course, comes with the advent of the internet, and even more explicit understanding that the right sequence of characters, the right web address in this case, really could show you something that you hadn't seen before, and that that thing might be terrible, that that thing might be violent or sexual or grotesque or macabre in a way that you are completely incapable of anticipating. In this way, the Jesselman video feels like a product of an older world, the kind of world where terrible things and beautiful, awe-inspiring things too might be presented to you at any moment. This is all the more striking, of course, because we've been prompted to expect a fake video through the Goldblum video earlier in today's reading. But instead, the narrative turns to assure us that this is, in fact, completely real. We're also told that Kay sees the circle, though we notably don't get the information about who won the ninth and 10th iterations, and we don't even know if the 8th iteration is still empty. From there, we go to investigate the absence of Baron Corduroy and find him watching a creepy video of exactly the sort that I discussed earlier in today's podcast, in a state of what might charitably be called dishevelment, and then we get the hard cut to chapter 16 and the news of Baron's death. In chapter 17, we double down on the description of the world state. Eleven has begun, players are disappearing, the magician wields his dubious authority over Kay and Chloe to, again, warn them off of the game. And just to underscore the danger, Kay gives us a count of nine years ago, and the coming of the Grey Fuzz, the loss of time and memory, and the danger. And this time draws a specific connection between that event, the night station experience with Annie and Emily, and, more importantly, with the connections game played with Kay's parents. So though Kay might still be distinguishing between connections and rabbits in the broadest sense, we are now invited to understand that the stakes, or at least the personal consequences to Kay, are the same. We can talk a little more about coincidence and about how the game works and about how Kay navigates these things and navigates their narratorial duties to the reader, but let's hold off on that until next week and wrap up. Before we're done, though, a couple of quick notes. I would like to say thanks to Eric over on the Next Word Discord server for pointing me toward the phenomenon of amateur press associations through the 20th century as a democratized public forum for collaboration and creativity and journalism and debate. A lot of what was understood about public discourse around the creation of the internet around those times came from those associations and their influence is still felt today. So 
Thank you, Eric, for inspiring my own research rabbit hole this last week. Oh, and another thing that I mentioned on the Discord, but we'll bring up here because it is cute. Uh, Terry Miles released a Spotify playlist with songs featured in and inspired by rabbits. And it's an interesting listen. Plus, any playlist that begins with Tori Amos's Crucify is a good playlist as far as I'm concerned. The link to that will be in the show notes. So, some scheduling information. First, we have some unfinished business. We have to complete the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series with the bonus episode, which I was going to host live last weekend, but the extreme weather we've been experiencing here in the Midwest has been taxing my internet connection and power supply and voice more than I would like. So we're going to do it toward the end of this week. Thursday, January 18th, noon central time. That is 1 p.m. Eastern time, 10 a.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. UTC. It'll run probably 30 to 45 minutes, so probably around an hour, I would expect. I'm going to discuss the 2005 movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're going to talk about Liam Neeson. We're going to talk about James McAvoy. We are certainly going to talk about Tilda Swinton. That will take place over on the Next Word Discord, so you'll be able to type questions into the little comments channel as I go and hang out with everyone. I know that this is short notice, and I hope that you will be able to make it, but if you can't, don't worry. The audio of that broadcast will be released as a regular podcast over on the Patreon page for everyone to hear. And while we're on the subject of bonus episodes, mark your calendars because a few of you have emailed in and specifically asked for this. So I am going to do an extra bonus episode for the first season of the Rabbits podcast after we're done with the book, probably around the second week of February. It probably won't be the same Thursday noon slot because I want to move it around in the schedule to give as many people as possible a chance of listening live, but I'll be able to give you lots of warning for that. So come and hang out on the Discord. You can get access to everything that I do, every bonus episode of this podcast, every bonus episode of The Last Star in Hollywood, a podcast critically examining the filmography and cultural impact of Tom Cruise that I co-host with Elizabeth Ray. All of that stuff, patreon.com slash next word. And if that's not enough... As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, the poll is now up on the Patreon page for the next book series for our third season. After we are done with Rabbits, we're going to be discussing whichever of these books you, the Stars and Swords community, select. I am at your command, although I did put the shortlist together, so really, you know, it's, it's more of a reciprocal arrangement, I guess. This time, we're going to talk about a high-concept fantasy story, a magical realist story written by a woman, and these are your choices. We could contemplate art and memory with The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, an historical magical realist romance about an immortal woman doomed to be forgotten. We could dive deep into love, loss, and nonlinear storytelling with The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffnegger from 2003, adapted into a movie in 2009 and a critically dismissed 2022 HBO series. We could explore dual romance in 21st and 18th century Scotland, with Susanna Kearsley's 2008 novel, The Winter Sea, or we could quantum leap through our own experience in Una Out of Order by Margarita Montemore, in which the protagonist lives the years of her life in a random order. So those are your options for the third season of the show. Head on over to the Patreon page and cast your vote now. That poll will be open until next Sunday, January 21st, and I'll announce the results in the next episode of this podcast. I know that's a lot, so let's do a quick recap right here. Go vote on the next book on the Patreon page. Come hang out on the Discord on Thursday the 18th at noon central for the discussion of the movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And come back next week as we continue our journey through rabbits. We get some more revelations about Kay's past. We meet an old friend and witness the world beginning to unravel as we discuss chapters 17 to 29. 
Stars and Swords is made possible by listeners like you, and thanks to your generosity, I don't have to tell you about therapy apps on your smartphone or about electric bikes. If you like what you hear and you want more of it now and in the future, head on over and pledge your support at patreon.com slash next word. And as I say at the end of every episode of Stars and Swords, Jeff Goldblum does not belong in this world. Thanks for listening. Thank you.